From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. I tell people all the time, I would love not to think about race, but y'all keep making me think about race because the way you treat me and other people. We asked five black Coloradans to share what their lives are like at this moment in America. I just have to say respectfully, and I love a good parade, but if you get permission, that's not a protest, that's a parade. Police officers around the country that happen to be black catch themselves in a catch-22. I myself feel as though I am just as angry as my brothers and sisters protesting. We cannot allow this type of violence and brutality against our communities to continue unanswered. Something has to change solidly, and I think we're on the verge of our social contracts being rewritten, and if not, prepared to see more, because folks ain't got nothing to lose at this point. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, five black Coloradans from different walks of life share their experience in America right now. They reflect on the protests, both peaceful and destructive, that have followed the death of George Floyd and what they hope comes next. At the end of the show, they'll share reading recommendations, books that have deepened their understanding of themselves and of this country. Elizabeth Epps is with the Colorado Freedom Fund, which raises money to bail black people out of jail, including those arrested in recent days. And uh, Elizabeth, speaking for yourself, what is it like to be black in America right now? And is it any different than it was, say, a week and a half ago? There's something that's consistently on my mind about the presence of video and the omnipresent ability of people to film what's happening that has let other people know um, what being black is like in some ways. Um, Although being black hasn't changed, the fact that others seem to be aware, more aware of it, is changing. In the past week, this was the first time in my life that I've ever been tear gassed. Um, This was not the first time that I was at a protest where that has happened, but I was unprepared for it. I was completely peaceful. I was on the steps of the Capitol, and I don't feel like my blackness was the reason I got gassed, but it was in that I'm out there because my blackness is under attack. We all know, right, that to be black in America is to be perpetually in a state of, of terror If you're paying attention, it can be for many of us. And so for me, I wouldn't say the past week has actually been different. It's just more eyes have been on our experience. Murphy Robinson is Denver's director of public safety, which oversees the police, sheriffs and fire departments. And uh, Murphy, I'm curious what it's like to be black specifically right now in law enforcement. Mm. You know, Ms. Epps said it right. Um, Our blackness is on the stage now more than ever before, which is a good thing. Um, However, as a law enforcement officer uh, and police officers around the country that happen to be black catch themselves in a catch-22. I myself uh, feel as though um, I am just as angry as my brothers and sisters protesting and in this predicament of How do we help people understand our experience and understanding what we go through as black people in America? At the same time, uh, we must uphold our oath to protect the citizens we serve and uh, follow the orders to protect the citizens in which we serve from our, uh, the commanding staff, which I happen to be a part of. I'm blessed to be a part of, but it is, it's a hard thing because 
for generations, we have seen police departments act unequally to our uh, black populations, frankly discriminatory against our black populations. But now I think uh, as we see more African Americans in law enforcement, you know, that tide is starting to turn, that experience is starting to turn. But there's a lot of work to do. Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod hails from Denver. She is the first openly LGBTQ African American in the General Assembly. And Representative, I suppose differently put, how are you doing right now? Thank you for asking. Um, I'm doing as best as we can. As you know, I was um, in a situation where there were um, gunshots at me and into a crowd where I was standing, um, hitting the Capitol and also very close to some um, state patrol. This past Thursday, right? Yeah, this past Thursday. Um, I'm okay. I'm alive. And I'm just more determined to get the work done for the community. And how are you as someone who is African-American in this country today? You know, it's interesting because every one of the people on this phone call today or uh, on this panel, I consider a friend, and we all have very different perspectives. But one thing that I think we all feel as African-Americans right now is the gravity of this moment and the determination to make change. We cannot allow this type of violence and brutality against our communities to continue unanswered. And so even if we come from different perspectives, we all stand united in saying that it's time for change. I'm so glad that Leslie claims me as a friend. (laughs) Adrian Miller, you heard there, he's executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches, which does a lot of interfaith, intercongregational work. Uh, They may be best known for their Red Rocks Easter service. And Adrian, this same starting question, which is, how does it feel to be black today in the U.S.? Does it feel any different than it did a week ago? I mean, I have a very heavy heart and a troubled spirit, mainly about the spiritual crisis that we're facing right now. And it doesn't feel any different than a week ago, because if you all remember a week ago, we had someone, a very publicized case where someone in New York City was using the police as customer service to falsely report a crime, you know, against an African-American man. He was minding his own business in New York Central Park, birding. And it just reminds us, yeah, uh, it just reminded us so much of all of these ways that People, either law enforcement or private citizens, feel like they can police African-American liberty. And so that's how we started out. And then we get to the tragic case of George Floyd. And so I just think about the spiritual crisis that we're facing. And I'll just leave you with a, a social media message that I put out yesterday. I just said, for people of faith uh, or people who belong to a faith tradition, was anything said in your community over this weekend which talked about recent events and racism. And if nothing was said, please ask yourself, why not? And then ask the very same question of the people who lead your faith community. Because in my faith tradition, which is Christian, we do know that it is divided by race. Uh, And in many ways, what Martin Luther King said 50 years ago about Sunday morning at 11 o'clock being one of the most segregated hours in America is pretty true still. Mm. And we have to come to grips with that as a community. Adrian, will you repeat a line that you said in connection to the New York case? Something about policing Black liberty. Say that again. Yeah. So what I mean by policing Black liberty is all of these things that white people take for granted, the ability to walk down the street, uh, to be in a park, 
to go to a restaurant, to do all of these things, uh, for whatever reason, if an African-American is doing that and a white person feels threatened, they call the police. They escalate it unnecessarily. And we're seeing that black people getting arrested, shot at, all these other things coming from this place of privilege where white people think that they can somehow police the conduct of African-Americans, things that people just take for granted. Also with us, award-winning slam poet Theo Wilson, who directs Shop Talk Live, which uses barber shops and beauty salons to stage community discussions. Uh, Theo, what's it like to be in your shoes right now? One of the things that I always process when I see a brother getting killed by the police is my own PTSD from the time that I almost got killed by the police. And the thing that I deal with the strongest is survivor's guilt. Because, I, you know, I'm a trained martial artist. I actually resisted in a way that George Floyd did not resist, in a way that Oscar Grant did not resist. Uh, there's so many things that go through my head. And I am processing the fact that there's a natural part of me that feels vengeance, that feels rage, that I've had to direct through my community activities, that I've had to direct through my art. And what I didn't realize until recently is how much this trauma cost me personally in coping with the emasculation that it brought me. Just as a man, I am dealing with the self-hatred that comes with feeling like I'm not doing enough. I'm from a military family, and the warrior bend is that you stand up for your people, you fight. You do not allow a beast, a predator, to take from you, and yet it keeps happening time and time again, dissociating that from my sense of identity and just being able to look at what is on my square that I can accomplish right now is one of the things that I've had to intensely process. If not, the places that I fall into are incredibly dark, incredibly red and, and just purple with, with freaking so much wrath, man. And getting back on my feet, being able to be a good family, man. Like I got a daughter now, you know, I got a queen now and I'm trying to focus on making sure that that doesn't leak over to them so that at least the emotional trauma does not get perpetuated to what is now my next generation. I want to note one uh, interesting distinction and correct me if I'm wrong here, but Representative Herod and Elizabeth, I think you have taken two different approaches to protesting. Representative, you've been quite mindful of the curfew And Elizabeth, uh, from following you on social media, I know that the curfew has not sent you immediately home (laughs) at 8 p.m. If you could see me, you'd see me grasping my pearls. (laughs) (laughs) Can I have the two of you talk to each other about that? Yeah, you know, um, Elizabeth, (laughs) she knows how I feel about her being out there past curfew, but I want to say that I... It's not even about being out past curfew. It's about being out at night. She gets frequent texts from me. Um, I follow her feed. And quite frankly, I respect the work that she's done. Um, I love her for her commitment and her bravery. You know, I go home and I write bills. I write policy. Um, Epps pushes from a different place, but we are pushing in the same direction. I read the Denver City order very carefully, I promise you. And it was very clear that people were allowed to go to and from work. My work is an abolitionist. I get people out of cages, and that's what I was doing after 8 o'clock, and I feel very confident in that. Um, there's also a bit of an irony, you know, in us talking about laws and ordinances when I've been a part of a use-of-force committee, 
and witnessed more violations of use of force than I could even document over the past few days. Ryan, you asked Leslie and I, Representative Herod, to talk to each other about those different decisions yeah. in terms of protest. And I guess there's a couple things I'd like to add. One is Representative Herod and I do not take different tacks. We take complementary ones. I mean, if I could just be a modest for just a second, it, I didn't do it alone, hardly. But the thing I'm most proud of in my professional life was passing House Bill 191225, and that was sponsored by Representative Leslie Harris. And tell us what that is. Yeah, thank you. It's the bill that ended cash bail for low-level offenses across the state of Colorado, putting Colorado first in the nation and being progressive on that point. So policy and protest go hand in hand. And a word about that, when we think about our different decisions in terms of how we wanted to show up, because really what we are talking about, right, is how we want to put our black lives and bodies on the line. I just have to say respectfully, and I love a good parade, but if you get permission, that's not a protest, that's a parade. You know, there's different spaces and different roles in this movement work, and we need each other. And I saw a gorgeous photo of my representative, Herod, standing in solidarity and a fist raise while folks were participating in a lion. That wasn't a space for me, but I needed her there. I also need her home and safe because I need her to pass our bills, right? So um, the same way she's worried about me, I would be definitely having a hard time respecting her autonomy Mm. if she wanted to be out late in the streets. Murphy Robinson, I just want you to address something that uh, might have flown by, but I think is very important. Elizabeth Epps is not alone in saying that she has seen violations of Denver's use of force policy in the response to these protests. Can you please address that for us? Our use of force policy has been worked on for many years. Uh, While it's not perfect, it is far better than many others in the country. And when I started this job five months ago, uh, and permanently a couple weeks ago, I dedicated to not only the citizens, the mayor, but also to our public safety personnel that I owe it to them to hold them accountable to that use of force policy. And so as some of the folks on this call have even texted me uh, videos or things of concern, of their concern, I have worked hard to make sure that we act on those things swiftly, we have them investigated, and we hold our folks accountable uh, where necessary. Let me just be clear. If a video is showed to you, you will bring that to what, to Chief Pazin? That's uh, correct. I give it to Chief Pazin and uh, our, our internal investigations team and uh, the appropriate teams that investigate. And we make sure that they're investigated swiftly. If there's action to be taken right away, we absolutely take that action. Are there those cases open now? Yes. Theo, what do you think is truly being said in these protests, uh, what you're hearing and what you have to say as well as an artist? What I think is being said in these protests is that we are tired of the social contract that has us all participate harmoniously and with integrity with this system being violated by those who uphold the system. Um, Trevor Noah at The Daily Show had a great uh, question, and people are asking, why riot, why loot? The question is, why not riot? Why not loot? And generally, the answer to that question is because the tacit quiet agreement is that order is better for me than chaos. And that if I play by the rules and I'm good and I don't take everything out of Target and Walmart and Kmart, then ultimately I will be served in the harmony that we all have as a society, given the institutions having integrity and holding themselves accountable like me. What's being said right now is we are actually at a breaking point, a watershed moment, 
where a very powerful confluence of circumstances, tender, kindling, has been laid down in the entire country. And technically, if you want to look at it, the entire world, and all we needed was a match, yo. We have been stretched to the very end of that contract by COVID-19. You know, we gave up everything. We gave up our jobs. We gave up our lives. We gave up our pleasures. We gave up movies and basketball games, karaoke and salsa dancing, all to have it not have any end date in sight. And we couldn't do it anymore. And at this point in time, we are at depression level unemployment rates. We got folks that ain't got nothing to lose when they go back tomorrow to riot again, to break again, or even to protest again. And with that being said, something has to change solidly. And I think we're on the verge of our social contracts being rewritten. And if not, prepare to see more because folks ain't got nothing to lose at this point. Would you take an item from a Kmart or a Walmart right now? Like, uh, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Talk to me about your kind of personal relationship to that idea versus your philosophical or universal perception of that idea. My personal relationship to the idea is that need is need. And I can't tell, you know, somebody said, if you're holding two hot coals, I can't tell you which one is colder. I can't. So for me, in my current situation, no, I got a little something right now that I can, you know, uh, fall back on economically. You know, even though a lot of that was taken away from me. But if somebody is in need, we have to understand something about human beings. And until we write this into our social contract, we're going to keep having these occurrences. And that is that people sacrifice their values to get their needs met. And if you and your values in a society are not meeting the needs of the people, I mean, it's primal, it's reptilian, it's in the back of the brain, it's our limbic system. Fight, flight, feed, whatever. We're going to do whatever's necessary in order to actually provide for ourselves and our families. So don't put people in that situation. You won't have these situations. And if I was in that situation, I know I am primal enough that if, it, if it's got to go down, it's got to go down. If I had to, I would take, and I'm trying to keep myself out of that situation so I don't. This is Murphy. I'd like to address that. You know, he said something very powerful to me. You know, I've used the Tinder analogy myself with the match being lit. I 100% agree. But when he said that there's two hot coals and you can't tell which one is hotter. Uh, that's one of the most powerful statements I've heard, and that's where I think people are at in this at this time. We are dealing with two major national crises, and so I will tell you to have both of these be that tender and uh, to have George Floyd's life be that match, it's completely understandable. I'm in the same place. I talk about uh, how blessed I am to have a job in which I only have to take furlough days at this point and wasn't laid off. Um, that is not the case of some of my family members. Uh, and so I understand and, and agree. However, where we dissent, where I dissent is that other lives should not be affected by our rage or our anger or our frustration. Um, and violence shouldn't be a, uh, a part of that equation. That's where we have to draw a line. Uh, violence cannot be, riots cannot be part of our equation because that doesn't, in the long run, help us as Denver. That's not who we want to be. And so I would just urge us to find another way together uh, because we can't continue to have violence uh, reign in our city. I heard the good brother Murphy Robinson say, and I know he meant well, that where we have to draw a line is where other lives are impacted or affected. That, that's exactly wrong. The point is to impact and to disrupt. 
It's supposed to be uncomfortable. And we need to talk about who's looting home. I read that it was something like America's billionaires got like 430, $440 billion richer during the pandemic. Who's looting home, right? And James Baldwin taught us in 1968 to reject this term looters because, you know, he points out that we're accusing a captive population who has been robbed of everything of looting, which is in itself obscene. So when we, of course, there are, we want protections and and limits and violence shouldn't be out of hand. But the very idea that we're supposed to not disrupt or interrupt, you know, George Floyd wanted to get home. And I want to add one last thing, because I've heard so many people talking about how others shouldn't be affected. But I promise you, having been out there every single day of these protests in Denver, traffic bystanders are overwhelmingly supportive. They've hollered out of their car to say, I'm missing such and such, but it's okay. Y'all do you right. I'm late for such and such, but it's okay. Y'all need to be out here. And so I just would really reject a narrative to suggest that protesters should not impact or interrupt others' lives, even though there should be limits. Adrian Miller, I know you were trying to sneak in there, Executive Director of the Colorado Council of Churches. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to actually revisit something you said earlier. It was this point about weariness. And it, for me, it comes in two forms. So one, there's weariness about the fact that Black existence in this country has now always been tied to violence. My ancestors were brought here forcibly to do uncompensated work. And before that, uh, Native Americans were decimated. They had their land stolen from them and genocide. And so we are, we should never lose sight of the fact that we are protesting, rejecting a system that tries to keep us in a certain place in society. And then the other part of the weariness is that over and over again, we, we, we were just waiting for the light bulb to come on with white people about the status of marginalized people, why we are protesting, why we're so frustrated, why we have rage. Mm. I think I'm seeing a little bit of progress on that because I'm seeing spontaneous gatherings of people saying, okay, this is a real problem. And I don't, you know, there's a question as to why this didn't happen before, but I think there's more awareness. And the, the fact that we have spontaneous protests across the country and around the world, like Theo said, uh, I think because of the pandemic and other things, we have to do things in a new way. We're in a new place. And it's up to us to mold that shared future together. Our discussion with five Black thought leaders in Colorado continues in the next half hour. A white listener asks how she can be an ally, but why ally may not be enough. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a tumultuous time in Colorado, and CPR News wants to hear your voice. Thursday, join Colorado Matters for a statewide listening session. Whether you've been protesting or watching from home, share your perspective on what's happening in the streets of Colorado and what you're going through. Call 303-871-9191, extension 480, to be a part of this Colorado Matters listening session. Again, 303-871-9191, extension 480. As the nation deals with COVID-19, Americans are also faced with the scourge of racial inequality. We've seen that in health outcomes during the pandemic. And of course, it's borne out in policing. Black people are nearly three times more likely to be killed by officers than white people. Today, five Coloradans share their experiences right now being black in this country. 
Let's return to State Representative Leslie Harrod, Adrian Miller, head of the Colorado Council of Churches, poet and speaker Theo Wilson, Elizabeth Epps of the Colorado Freedom Fund, and Murphy Robinson. He leads the Denver Department of Public Safety, which oversees the city's police, sheriff, and fire departments. We got a question from a listener, Robin Mendelson. She identifies as white, and she asked, What needs do our fellow African-American citizens have in Denver? How can we support them better? Uh, In a way, what would be your to-do list for allies right now? Uh, Representative Harrod, you want to take that? Sure. You know, I think one, um, and, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, but I'm looking forward to introducing legislation around this issue, specifically around police brutality and excessive use of force. Um, transparency and ensuring there's just more integrity on the force. But when you ask what I want my white allies to do, one is to support that, but two is to stop putting things on our shoulders right now, especially. But it's not our job to teach you how to be better, but it is your job to expect better from your white counterparts, your white friends, your white family, and to shine a light on this injustice that's happening. So when folks ask me what they can do right now to be a better ally, I want to see you calling out your friends, your family on social media who are saying, you know, all lives matter or this is about vandalism or any of those kind of statements that are distracting from the point of this moment. And the point of this moment and the point of this movement is that we have to respect black lives and that people must stop dying on the streets at the hands of law enforcement and vigilantes. And so I want my white allies to know that I need you to stand up. And if you see something happening to someone who is a person of color, step up, step in between that violence, say no more and be accountable. I just want to hone in on one thing you said there, Representative Herod, which is, you know, I think there's a lot of debate right now. Who's smashing windows? Who is doing the graffiti? Um, Are they interlopers? Are they agitators? Are they black? Are they white? It sounded like you said to me, that is a distraction from the more fundamental point of the unrest. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Listen, I was shot at by somebody. You know what I mean? I'm sure they were an agitator and Murphy can answer that better. But that's not my point. The point is, is that we have to focus on the brutality that's happening on the streets. Like, we don't need to talk about all this other stuff that's a distraction. We need to respect the demonstrations that are going on, and we need to demand accountability. That's the focus. The focus is is that a man was killed under the boot of a, a knee of a law enforcement officer. It, was, it showed everybody. And that is not okay. And people need to stand up and say that is not okay. That is the focus of this moment. The focus of this moment is for folks to acknowledge the racism that does exist within this society right now, and what even exists in their hearts and change it. Just briefly, what do you feel when you look at the place you work, the state capitol, and you see it in the state that it's in now? How, how do you square the pain that you feel around the death in Minneapolis with th- that site of the capitol? You know, I sit here in the capitol right now. Right this moment, um, I'm looking out of the window at thousands of protesters, and I hear them coming and going as, as the marches proceed. Um, and what I see when I look at this building and when I look out from this building is pain, is pain of so many people 
who just want this to stop and who need to be seen and who need to live. So that's what I see. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And I see a call to action and that's to get something done. And that's my job as someone who has the vote and the responsibility to represent Colorado. All right, Elizabeth Epps, do you want to answer the question that we got from a listener, which is to say, how can allies be of support? Um, One thing I'd like to plant is that the goal should be to be an accomplice. An accomplice is better than an ally in in a lot of ways. Um, Allies are kind of like entry level. Um, A very practical thing. Am I allowed to give a plug to the Freedom Fund, Ryan? (laughs) Well, so this this is the organization that raises money to bail um, folks of color out of jail. I mean, I'd I'd like not to go into a total pitch for it, but it makes sense that you would point to the organization whose uh, mission you have dedicated your life to, Elizabeth. Well, yes, I appreciate it. And you introduced it by saying we raise money to, to post bail. Um, we actually, we're working to, to end wealth-based detention, right? And one of the ways we do that is to pay ransom at the Denver cage and at cages all over Colorado. We would love to help Murphy Robinson empty that at jail, and I'm positive he would agree with me on, on that being a good goal. As a practical matter, sometimes I know it feels like a cop-out to say you have to do your own work, but there are resources. There's indivisible. There's no white nonsense. If you Google how to be an ally, you've done the first step in taking the labor off of the shoulders of of Black women specifically. And so I, I bristle sometimes when I'm asked how to be a good ally because I feel like this country was built on our backs and it gets exhausting and even more exhausting being asked that. Mm. But do that simple Google search. If you can show up to protest, you should. You should bring your children. Um, You should take them home before sundown. Um, You should bring your children. You should bring signs. You should have your children make their own signs. You should listen to and amplify the voices of black, brown, indigenous, queer women, particularly. I mean, in doing those things, really just in following those folks online, you'll start to learn, right? The information is there. You'll know why it's offensive to us to hear someone say all lives matter. That's sort of like step number one, if that makes any sense. Murphy Robinson, Elizabeth mentioned you, so I'll let you take this next. What is being an ally, or as as Elizabeth says, an accomplice, what does that look like to you? Yeah, so, you know, I come from a perspective, and Elizabeth hit it right. I could, I would love to see uh, less people in our jails, especially uh, people that look like me. So what I would love to see is uh, that the system be made so that it's equally uh, uh, enforced for all. And so when I say if a system isn't work it, work for us, change it. Uh, those allies or those accomplices need to uh, help us figure out how we can make this system better, whether it's uh, on the line peacefully protesting with Elizabeth Epps or presenting legislation uh, with Leslie Herod, or for that matter, uh, helping me understand how we can make our policies work better in the police department so that uh, when we do come in contact with people, they feel as though their system is working for them. That's what I want to see. Uh, and, you know, our law enforcement officers are charged with enforcing the laws of the land. And so I've always said this uh, to, to many folks when I'm talking about these inequality issues, is if the system doesn't work, change it. If the laws don't work for us, let's change them. But we have to do that together, and we're not going to get it right every time. But I think as we can move the needle together, everyone on this call is part of this system in some facet. And I think uh, this, uh, this call is such an example of how we can work together to move the needle and make sure that uh, our kids, my daughter, 
doesn't see, doesn't have to even experience what it's like to go through something like this. Can I drop something in here, Ryan? Yeah, this is Theo Wilson. Go ahead, Theo. So when we talk about moving the needle, sometimes it feels like we're asked for gradualism in radical times. And when we talk about systemic change, we're talking about ultimately what is the design and function of this machine in the first place. Does that make sense? This is a situation by which what is being exposed is kind of cultural agreement that we all have that the police themselves, because there's quote unquote bad guys out there, that they could bust a couple heads. They could put some boots on necks or knees on necks if it means maintaining the system, the status quo as it is. And within that blind spot, you have a place in which psychopathic and sociopathic personality can creep into professions that were meant for warrior spirits, meant for people who have this natural urge and instinct to protect people. But as long as that agreement is there, as long as the bad guys drift fed by newscasts after uh, video after video look like me, then that quiet agreement puts me in danger. You see what I'm saying? The incrementalism and the moving the needle, I don't know if this is the moment for that. I think that this is the moment that if you don't take radical change, if you don't actually break or dismantle a huge part of this system, you're going to see the people tear it apart. Never forget that the American experiment does not have to work. And when you really look at it, somebody said, we think our democracy is like 240-some years old. This democracy is only 56 years old, technically. Like, if black people couldn't vote, did you have a democracy? If women couldn't vote, did you have a democracy? This is still an experiment. You see what I'm saying? And we are at the breaking point of it falling apart, especially with these uh, confluence of circumstances right now, that we'll have people being violent. And about the violence, who is it? Is it Antifa, supposedly? Is it white supremacists under cloaks? Is it police officers dressed as us? It could be all of those things, right? It could be brothers and sisters breaking stuff. But what it is is that there was a Jenga tower. And when you remove certain pieces from that Jenga tower, Certain other pieces will fall with it when it all collapses. So there could have been violent elements latent in the system already and in the culture and the society already. But when it begins to fall, then you have a situation where those are all unleashed. And we need to start talking about radical changes to systemic problems or else we will tear this system apart and we're going to have to figure out something else. And it ain't going to be called America when it's done. Theo Wilson there, slam poet, TED Talker, and executive director of Shop Talk Live, which convenes community conversations in barber shops and beauty salons. More from our panel of five black Coloradans sharing their experiences in America right now after a break. One of our guests says there can be blowback when you bring up Black Lives Matter at the pulpit. Plus, Books that have deepened our guests' understanding of themselves and of this country. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. The fact that we're funded by our listeners motivates me every day. 
coming from a commercial existence, there's pressures that go with working in a commercial setting that I found kind of evaporated when I came over to the public side. I'm membership director Jason Moore. CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity. Five Black Coloradans, leaders in faith, politics, the arts, law enforcement, and justice, join us for the whole show. What's their experience of America right now? Let's pick up the final part of our discussion with Adrian Miller, head of the Colorado Council on Churches, an interfaith group focused on faith and justice. I just want to say this is such a strange time for churches because of the pandemic. I mean, congregations haven't been meeting in person. And of course, we know in the history of the civil rights movement that black churches have traditionally played a big role. So I'd like to ask this question about help and being an ally um, posed by our listener through the the filter of church with you. And, and I mean to include churches as well with mostly white congregants, you know. Yeah. So um, one way is to, uh, in the words of Governor Andrew Cuomo from New York, is to be spiritually connected, even though we're socially distant. So that means being present with people who are feeling uh, grief and outrage, checking in with your African-American friends, because uh, we're not okay with what is going on in, in the faith language. Pray for us. Um, but it's also a matter of being in tune to the protests. And to not fall for the distractions and to know that we are trained on the fact that we have systemic racism that has created a permanent underclass, or that's what it was designed to do. And we're seeing the the remnants of that still exist today and still thrive today. And so how do we come together to defeat that? Um, what what happens, work, Adrian, oh. what happens when in predominantly white congregations when preachers bring up Black Lives Matter? Well, it's not easy. So I know anecdotally that preachers have told me when they even mention the words Black Lives Matter, that people get up in the middle of the sermon and walk out. Now, let that sink in for a moment. And so a lot of I know quite a few pastors that want to do the right thing, but they're hesitant because they don't want to divide their congregation. And so a lot of work has to be done within churches to deal with white supremacy, to deal with these issues of racial justice and to come to grips with that. Because if, if we never really fully confront this, these things will persist, and we'll never have justice. And if you look at the Bible, I, one of my favorite Bibles is the Poverty and Justice Bible, which highlights every portion of the Bible that deals with social justice. When you flip through the pages of that Bible, most of the Bible is about social justice. And so if we are going to be people of faith and live out our faith, we have to come to grips with issues of social justice. At, uh, this is Leslie. Hi, hi at, Representative. Yeah. Hey, you know, it's interesting because in all of our respective spaces, when we bring up issues of Black lives, Black Lives Matter, issues of racial inequality and racial injustice, we lose followers. You know, ministers lose people in their congregation. As an elected official, I lose them by the, by the hundreds um, of folks who no longer want to hear anything else I say. When I was on the floor talking about the racial disparities in COVID, I was asked to stop talking about race. Um, and so people need to, to stop. Allies need to stop. They need to say that we want to hear these issues. We want to hear you. And they actually need to listen. What do you tell people who say, but it's all identity politics. The more we focus on the race, the less we are able to relate to one another as just human beings. I think that's the pushback, oh, you know? 
I would. Yeah. I, this is Murphy. I would say that you, you must not be a person of color because <laughs> right. we have to walk yeah. that every day. We don't. We yeah. can't. We there's nothing that can uh, hide yeah. us from the inequalities that we face from the time we're born. Yeah, I would I tell say, people. Again, oh, go ahead. But I would say that is definitely code for I am uncomfortable. I don't want to hear about your pain. Adrian. I was going to say, um, I, I tell people all the time, I would love not to think about race, but y'all keep making me think about race because the way you treat me and other people. I know that Murphy Robinson has to get going, so I'm going to ask him very quickly before he leaves the call. Murphy, is there a great book, a great article, a great piece of art or movie that you think would benefit society from watching, reading, seeing right now? Yes. And it's not an art, it's not a piece of art, but it's a combination of art and history. The African American History Museum in Washington, D.C. I've been four times, and it highlights the struggle in which we have faced for generations. But it also, if you start at the bottom, you actually start out and, uh, and understand what we were as uh, people of color, as Africans. There was trade, there was so many things that happened uh, throughout generations, um, and so I would I would say every, anyone that can visit that museum, but also it takes just a simple question to people that you know that experience the things that we talked about today, and ask them what their what is their life like, what is their experience as a person of color, and start to understand the people around you, um, and I think that'll make the, all of the difference uh, in your own life and how you can uh, be more of an advocate for uh, people like me. Murphy Robinson, head of the Department of Public Safety, which oversees police, sheriffs, and fire in the city of Denver. Thanks very much, Murphy. Thank you so much. Theo Wilson, as an artist, I'm very curious how you'll answer this idea of a book or a piece of art that you think would be particularly helpful right now. Yes, yeah, called Post-Traumatic Slavery Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGray. And what she talks about is racism is an environmentally learned phenomenon. And it's not just the trauma that black folks have inherited by not 150 years ago from slavery, but actually seven to six parental relationships ago. And what do you pick up about the world when you're just a baby learning language? You don't only learn words, but you learn paradigms. You learn the trauma vicariously of what your parents went through, and that becomes your own. But as we talk about that, and we, there's a discussion going on in the country right now about inherited trauma, but it often doesn't look at white inherited trauma. Because what happens is the quote unquote victory in the war for conquest costs you something. And what it cost you was the ability to confront the bodies beneath the floor of this empire. And every time we say Black Lives Matter, that's a telltale heart knocking at the floorboards of America. Every time we say, I need your help, it is interpreted as a war cry because you haven't removed the plank from your eye. You see what I'm saying? Trying to talk about the splinter in mind. And what we need to do, what that book talks about, is the fact that there is a culture of silence around race. See, Black folks, we got a whole culture that confronts it. We just look at it, we put it on the table because we know we can't hide from it. But when white folks have the conversations about race, they're ill-equipped to talk about it oftentimes, and they find themselves stepping on their tongue when they're talking to people of color. So what it unpacks, and I just really, post-traumatic slavery syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGry, yeah. what it unpacks is that child who was present at the lynching, the baby, because this was a community, a family affair, grew up to be somebody. 
And all you need to witness is one murder, one rape in order to traumatize you, have you in a psychologist's chair for life. So when you witness this, even if it wasn't happening to you, what happens to the child that grows up, if they become a policymaker, if they become a judge, if they become a police officer, that trauma is then passed on to society. And if you don't unpack that, there ain't no American experiment. You're too powerful not to address your trauma, white folks. Post-traumatic slave syndrome, America's legacy of enduring injury and healing. Uh, from 2005, uh, State Representative Leslie Harrod um, a, a work of art, a piece of literature that you think is worth reading at this moment? You know, um, and, and not to sound uh, too whatever, but I would say Elizabeth at Facebook and Twitter feed, sorry, Twitter feed, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to know what's going on in the hearts of Black people today, um, I think it's important to follow our leaders who are speaking out um, from these uh, demonstrations across America. And so, um, you know, if you can't find Black Twitter, that maybe is a good question for a Black friend. We can help you um, start down the rabbit hole. But I would say um, start with Elizabeth Epps's Twitter. Um, Tay Anderson's Twitter feed has been full of uh, perspective from a young Black man who has been involved in these demonstrations. Um, read anything that Theo writes about um, anything. And if you... Uh, you know, are trying to, to make a nice meal for your black friend. Adrian Miller has some amazing books <laughs> that, uh, that I suggest you all pick up. Adrian Miller, in addition to leading the Colorado Council of Churches, is also known as the soul food scholar for his scholarship, right. his food writing. Elizabeth Epps, you got called out there. Uh, what what um, what p- work of art or piece of literature would you have people read right now? That, that's really tough, um, really, really tough to pick just a couple, but I will. I would recommend to folks, um, it's not intro level reading, but but I feel like your audience might be past that somewhat. Um, I recommend two books by Mickey Kendall, one called Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, and the other is more recent by her, and it's called Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. Um, yeah, there, there's good work in there. So, I say really those two again. Yes, they're both by Mickey Kendall. And the first one's called Amazons, Abolitionists, and Activists. Okay. And the second one is Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women that a Movement Forgot. Um, it'll give you a lot of insight into, you, you started this by asking uh, Representative Herod and I to, to speak to each other about our different styles of protest. This, these books um, encompass that and more. Um, I really appreciated Murphy Robinson mentioning the, the museum in D.C. I actually haven't been able to to attend. And um, I find myself stuck on something he said at the start of this call about him being as angry as we are. And as we were talking, I I, I felt disbelieving. I felt, no, he's not, because if he was, but I, I might have changed my mind a bit. And if he's indeed as angry as we are, then I, I look forward to him working with us to strengthen the use of force policy and to amplify the necessity of duty to intervene. Um, which are also wrapped all up in those books I recommended. <laughs> mm. Adrian Miller, leave us with your recommendation. Yeah, so um, I would suggest something called From Sundown to Sunup, The Making of the Black Community by George P. Uh, Raywick. And essentially, this is a compilation of testimony from enslaved people of their experience. In the 1930s, as part of the relief effort with the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt created something called the Federal Writers Project, where he hired writers to go out and interview people who were formerly enslaved during their childhood. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. Um, the full, you can get, there's about 3,000 interviews. You can get a lot of them on the web and up under Born in Slavery, Library of Congress. But this book, From Sunup to Sundown to Sunup, sorry, um, actually is a nice uh, excerpt of, of the, many of those, of those uh, interviews. oral histories. Yeah. From Sundown uh, to Sun, I'm Googling it up, to Sunup, George Rawick. Yep. Okay. Making of the Black Community. And then the other one I would say very quickly is uh, The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, uh, who really just chronicles this idea how whiteness is, a, is an artificial thing as well. And I think reading those two gives people not all the context they need, but a good deal of context. Because uh, especially in those, in those uh, oral histories of enslaved people, the whole range of human experience is there. And I, I really don't think people really understood the depth of evil that was visited upon black people during slavery. Um, it's Yeah. Well, I want to thank you all for your time. You've been quite generous with it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Adrian Miller, head of the Colorado Council of Churches and food writer. You also heard from abolitionist Elizabeth Epps of the Colorado Freedom Fund. Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod represents Denver. Also, poet and speaker Thea Wilson and earlier Murphy Robinson, who leads the Denver Department of Public Safety. They are five black voices in Colorado sharing their experiences at a watershed moment in America. And we'll tweet their reading recommendations in just a bit at Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Special thanks to engineers Matt Hurz and Patrice Mondragon, also Carl Bielek and Alexandra McMahon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.